Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Welcome to another edition of The Racket Report. I'm Frank Morano on the podcast that delves into the underworld, the world of La Cosa Nostra, the world of organized crime. And we've looked at, we've spoken with mobsters. We've spoken with mob lawyers. We've spoken with journalists. We've spoken with family members of prominent uh, mob uh, aficionados. Well, today we're going to be talking with a guy that it seems like the whole world is talking about. He is the author of a brand new book. It's called Be a Disruptor, Streetwise Lessons for Entrepreneurs from the Mob to Mandates, a longtime restaurateur, a gifted storyteller, if this book is any indication. Uh, very, very pleased to welcome Stratus Morphigan. Stratus, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. So just to give folks an idea, I've known of your reputation in the restaurant business for many years, and uh, you've been sort of a very public restaurateur, in many respects sort of the face of New York. City restaurant tours for the last three decades. But for folks that may not be familiar with you and your background, how long have you been in the restaurant business? Uh, from the womb. From my the womb. third generation. My um, grandfather had a very successful restaurant for 75 years called Pappas, and that was uh, 1910. And my father had about 14 restaurants from metropolitan New York to Manhattan called the Chelsea Chop Houses and Hilltop Diner and typical Greek family. I grew up in this business from literally, I I knew what I wanted to do four to six years old. I knew I wanted to be in this business and I had no interest in school. In in your book, and this was excerpted in this New York Post article about your book that everybody was, uh, was, is still talking about since it was published last week, is uh, there's a discussion of a restaurant that your family had in Howard Beach mm-hmm. back in the 1970s. What restaurant was that? That was one of six Chelsea Chop Houses. And my father started that chain in 1956 to the last one was the one in Howard Beach. And that closed in 1985. And um, I, I learned a lot of my, my experience there. I was a busboy. I was a dishwasher, uh, peeling garlic and, and, and shrimp and you know, I learned the business from the from the bottom up. And now, these days, the restaurant that you have is Brooklyn Chop House. Brooklyn Chop House and Brooklyn Dumpling Shop. Brooklyn Chop House is at 150 Nassau Street, which is on the Manhattan side of the Brooklyn Bridge. And the other one we just opened in Times Square, which is on 47th and Broadway at 253 West 47. Yeah, it would definitely want to uh, pick your brain either in this conversation or in future conversations mm-hmm. on the radio about the restaurant business and some of the struggles that the restaurant business is going into now. But one of the people that you interacted with back in the 1970s in your youth in Howard Beach in your family's restaurant was Carlo Gambino. Carlo Gambino, not only the namesake of the Gambino crime family, but a very well-respected old school 
school mafia boss. Tell me, what was the relationship that you had, even as a six-year-old, with Carlo Gambino? Yeah, it was like 1973. I was six years old, and I would always see every time this short, diminutive man would walk in, he gained so much respect from all the staff, my father included. Had his special table, was there a couple of nights a week, always coming with five or six guys, and they would sit in the back. To me, I saw him as a nice old man, and I started hearing how the managers were talking with my father, get Mr. Gambino this, get Mr. Gambino that, make sure he's got his table. So I walked up to him as a six-year-old because I was very social, and I, and I started pouring water as a chubby little busboy, <laughs> and I said, you know, good evening, Mr. Gambino. And the whole table just stopped talking. <laughs> I mean, it was like silence. I still remember it like it was yesterday. And I looked and I said, wow, what did I do? And then Mr. Gambino says, come here, kid. I sat right next to him. He put his arm around me. He slips a $20 bill in my pocket. And he goes, hi, it's good enough. I'm like, wow, what? I mean, I guess he's giving me money, so I didn't do anything that bad. Sure. But I, didn't, I had no clue what that meant. It was my first lesson in discretion in owning a restaurant. I was either six years old, but it was a first lesson of mine that, you know what? You have to respect discretion because some people don't want to be called by their name. Mm. Some people don't even want to know that that, they're, that you're even acknowledging they're there, you know. And 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 that applies as just as well to celebrities or sports stars as it does to yeah. Gangsters. So fast forward in 2009 when I owned Philippe Chow, John Paulson, the big hedge fund billionaire, was had the private room in the basement. I went down to say hello to him. I look up on the board and there's a PowerPoint. And the PowerPoint says they're taking a hostile takeover of Bank of America the next day. <laughs> now, if I was corrupt, I'd be, sh- I'd be buying some stock that night uh, before the market opened. But this is what you see as a restaurateur. And I learned this at an early age. And the first lesson that I learned was from Carlo Gambino. That's that, wild. That, that high was good enough. And when, I, when my father saw me after that, he says, well, why, what happened? Why are you sitting with them? And I said, I don't know, Dad. I just said, hi, Mr. Gambino. And I could see my father's face like, oh, boy. The guy goes out of his way to be discreet. And here comes a six-year-old busboy who knows exactly who his name, what his name was. Yeah, but your general impressions were this was just a nice old fellow that was eating in your family's restaurant. I'm six years old, yeah. yeah. So you did later on. But he always asked me how school was. After that night when he gave me his first $20 bill, he always gave me a $20 bill. And he always asked me how school was. To me, it was like almost like an adopted uh, grandfather yeah did did he keep coming into that restaurant oh yeah until... yeah weekly this wow. was weekly and so, this this was probably like the fifth or sixth time i had seen him and i felt like he was part of our inner circle like right. he was part of our customers and i and, and i was very social on the floor i wasn't your typical six-year-old and i wanted to be a part of that you know and i wanted to you know say you know this guy's a steady customer let me call him by his name so it was not as if you just met him you knew him yeah, I mean, I knew his face. Yeah, right. he, he, my father knew him. Uh, later on, uh, when you were a bit older, you got to know a couple of very prominent members of uh, organized crime: the underboss of the Genovese crime family, Ralph Coppola, and a fellow by the name of Bobby Bucky Carbone. How did you know these fellows? Well, see, I, I I grew up in Garden City, Long Island, but I actually spent my nightlife years uh, going out into New York City. Uh, I met Bobby Bucky. We called him. I met Bucky at Ferrier. Um, I was a bistro on 65th and Madison. It was a big gangster hangout. Mostly the Gambinos hung out there. So I met him there like in early, like 1990. But Bucky was Genovese. Yeah, he was a soldier. And we became friends instantly. And, you know, I, I knew he was somewhat associated with mob. But, you know, we became friends first. And then he told me what he was and what he did. And 
Um, we, we became. Were you guys around the same age? Uh, he's about, uh, I think, uh, eight years older okay. than me. So same generation. Yeah, same yeah, age, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then we started hanging out. We started going to bars and clubs, and um, and then I saw the, 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 the then I started getting introduced to Ralph and the rest of the crews. And, you know, I was just the Greek, you know, I was just a Greek guy. And when it came to me coming into the Manhattan scene, I opened Gotham City Diner in 1993. And that was after like five years of like socializing in the Manhattan scenes, uh, you know, from O-Bar to, you know, uh, Danceteria, all the different bars we used to go to back in the day. And, um, you know, when I opened Gotham Diner, I had a really mixed crowd. I had, you know, I had these Upper East Side socialite mm-hmm. private school kids and I had, you know, Gambinos, I had Genovese's, I had Columbo's. It became like a really it's interesting the, the mix. The UN of La Cosa Nostra. Yeah, it became an interesting mix because I was friends with them before and they all came to support me. Was it Bucky that gave you the nickname the Golden Greek? Um, yes. Yeah. He, um, well, him and Ralph. I mean, but, but, it, but it all came to fruition when there was a meeting. Uh, the first time I heard it was a meeting at Spy Bar, which is a famous club on Green Street. And one of my friends was having a problem with a Hell's Angel. Mm. And they were going to, they were, they were, they were, there was a basically, he was going to be threatened. His life was threatened because he had an affair with one of the top Hell's Angels' wives. But he didn't know, he didn't know anything about that. She was married. He, he was married. She was married to uh, anyone. She thought he was, met her at a bar. They hooked up. They went back to his apartment or whatever. And the next thing he calls me, he says, you know, this guy wants to kill me. What can you do? And then, lo and behold, Bucky got together with me and Ralph, and we met with uh, Chuck Zito and um, a couple of other his guys and the guy in question. And we went at Spy Bar, and they're like, listen, you know, he's a good friend of the Golden Greek. And I'm like, <laughs> I, you know, I'm like, what? So they were both together when it was said, and it was the first time I heard it. And the next time I heard it was from the feds, which was funny. Yeah, well, I'm going to ask you about that in a second. But just to go back to your relationship with uh, Ralph Coppola, this is a uh, pretty high-profile gangster for a young man, even a, a budding uh, entrepreneur and restaurateur, to befriend. Uh, how did you get to be so tight with Ralph Coppola? Yeah, so Bucky, when, when I opened Gotham Diner, Bucky was obviously very close with Ralph. And... Um, and basically, Ralph and I just hit it off really quick. We we're, were pretty much very similar in a lot of a lot of ways, and we just we just really became really close. And then you know it was always first just me, Bucky, and Ralph, and then Ralph would come in with Barney. I love Barney too. You know these guys just were so respectful. You know, and but me and Ralph between the three of them and about six other guys that I became close with. It was Ralph and I. Ralph called me nephew, and I called him uncle. Wow! Uh, so you guys were tight, almost familial. Barry and I miss yeah. I, I, I I miss him. You know, he he was a really really good man. Uh, to me, he was basically um, one one of the greatest people I've ever met. You talk about opening the Gotham Diner, a Gotham City Diner, almost thirty years ago. Uh, this was not just your typical hamburger and eggs joint. No, right? it was a three star New York Times chef, and I've always disrupted everything I've done. Mm-hmm. I noticed that when I wrote my book, when I was writing it with the publishers and the editors, that even at six years old, I disrupted everything. You know, back then you called it stubborn and hard-headed. Today you call it, you know, today you call it being a disruptor. And, and, and I've, I continue to do so. Everything I've done has been a unique outlook on what I want to do. I never followed the status quo. And, and, and in truth, you know what? If you read all the movies and all the books, you don't want to be friends with these people. But I didn't experience that. 
Now, these were my friends. There's one anecdote that you share in your book uh, actually has to do with a friend of mine for about 20 years, Noel Ashman, <laughs> who I guess worked for you in the uh, early days of the Gotham City Diner. And uh, uh, Noel, I think, is a great guy. He's been a guest on uh, on my radio program several times. Seems to know everybody. But uh, you tell a story in the book of how he was working for you in those days. And then uh, he comes back to the restaurant and he is in a little bit of a bad way. What happened? Yeah, so um, at Gotham Diner and at Rouge Nightclub, uh, Noel Ashman was like head of my promotions. And we've been friends since 1992. And uh, he comes uh, after Gotham Diner exploded. It just became really busy. We were, we were busy 18 hours a day. You know, after 11 o'clock, it became a nightclub. We had DJs like Mark Ronson DJing. Obviously, he was just a kid at the time. And Noel was head of promotions, and Noel was taking care of all the promoters and doing all the VIP dinners. And then we would tell everybody to go to Rouge after that. So what happened, uh, he comes up all bloody one day. And I'm like, what's going on? He goes, these guys just beat me up. They said that uh, they, 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 want, they want like five to $10,000 a month, or they're going to continue to beat me up, and you're next. That was the message I had to give you. So lo and behold, um, these guys show up like two days later, and they sat at the bar staring at me all night, and I went up to them, and I said, what do you want? They said, we want, we want I think it was $5,000, and then we'll up it to 10000 later on, but we want this every month because that's the alcohol tax you pay in this neighborhood. And I said, go fuck yourself. And they said, oh, yeah, tough guy? I said, yeah, go fuck yourself. That was exactly what I told them. They said, well, you're going to change your mind because we're going to throw it. First of all, goes, we're going to break your windows every week until you give us our money. I said, go fuck yourself. And then bottom line is they left. And what they did, they didn't break my windows. They were throwing black paint on my windows every night. So one day while I'm cleaning the black paint off my windows, uh, Ralph is just coming in for like breakfast or something. And he says, yo, Neff, what's going on over here? Uh, second time I've seen you like cleaning black mm. paint. I said, well, you know, part of Gotti's Jr.'s crew is uh, shaking me down. And, you know, I don't know how to handle it. I'm not going to the cops. I'm not going to the feds. I said, you know, I'm just telling them to go fuck themselves. And, and meanwhile, meanwhile, three biggest judges in New York are my aunts and uncles. Wow. And I still wouldn't do it. Appellate well, Court, Supreme Court, and Supreme Court of Queens. Wow. I mean, that's, uh, that's no joke. Appellate division is, uh, is no joke at, at all. Why did you feel so comfortable being so brazen in defying these fellows that were trying to extort you? I was brought up like that. You know, I was brought up around the Fulton Fish Market. I, I knew the guys that ran the fish. I've been around that life, even though my father was not... You know, my father was right, he a, wasn't a street guy. No, I mean, he was a street guy, but he was a legitimate immigrant Greek restaurant mm-hmm. owner. I, I was I grew up at the Fulton Fish Market. It was my Disney World. Like I explained it in my book. That was my Disney World. Mm-hmm. So I saw ice picks going in a car if they didn't pay for their parking. I started going to tire. I, 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 I saw that stuff and none of it really shook me up. And when these thugs came to me, I'm OK with telling them to go fuck themselves. And what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do about it? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
did you do you know if the other restaurants uh, in that neighborhood were paying this uh, this, ex- this, um, the only, this mob the, tax? The only ones that were paying were the ones that were doing big alcohol sales. I see. You know, but they you, were paying. Yes, uh-huh. but they were paying. Actually, a couple of guys said to me, "Just pay it." I said, "I'm not." So what happened was Ralph noticed what was going on, and Ralph said to me, hey, um, what's going on here? And I said, these two guys are trying to shake me down. I think they're around Gotti's crew, John Gotti Jr.'s crew, and I don't know, what, what do I do? I'm just going to keep cleaning up the paint and see where this goes. And he goes, sit tight, nephew. That's all he said to me. So two days later, one of Ralph's guys calls me and says, go to Ferrier at 11 o'clock. I think it was a Friday night, and go to Ferrier and meet Ralph there. I get to Ferrier, Ralph is there with Bucky, and all the five capos in the back of all Gambinos are back there. And they're all friends of mine. You know, I'll just say first names. You know, Dan, Joe, Tony. These are guys are all like friends. Like every mm-hmm. time I see them, they say, hey, Greek, or hey, this, hey, that. They're just really, to me, they were great guys. Nothing like with this gaudy junior crew there where they were thugs. These guys were like respectable people, and I liked them. And so Ralph just went real hard in. He said, listen, this kid's around us. And you tell Junior to leave the kid alone or this thing's going to escalate. So he better come correct. We're giving him one warning. You stay away from this kid and you stay away from his business. And right away, the guys were like, listen, we like this kid. He's cool. We didn't know anything about this. We're going to squash this, Ralphie. We're good. We're going to squash it. So it was a sort of a joint sit down of Ralph and Genevieve's guys with Gambino. It was just, it, it was well. just Ralph and Bucky. I see. And, like, Got it. and five Gambinos. Mm-hmm. And then as we're walking out, I noticed that this is one of the guys that came to my bar and he's sitting there with his girlfriend eating at a different table. I whispered to Ralph and I said, that's him. That's the guy I think that beat up Noel. And Ralph goes up to him and he grabs him by the neck like a cat. And he says, you see this kid here? He's around me. And the next time you go into that restaurant, you're going to pull out your money and you're going to pay if he accepts you to come back in. And the next time you throw anything except money at that window. It's going to be the last time and the last move you ever made. And if I ever come back and I found out that you're harassing my Greek here, I'm going to have you crawl on the floor like the dog that you are, and I'll have you bark for forgiveness. I was like, whoa, what is this? And basically the guy said, Ralphie, Ralphie, I'm sorry. It's done. We're going to go there. We're going to support the restaurant. Like all of a sudden he was turning him into like a, a customer. And this was all done literally in 30 minutes. And in 30 minutes, this whole thing was squashed and Noel could stop having security guards because <laughs> he had two security guards after that. So uh, was that the end of your problem with uh, anybody extorting you after that? Basically, this kid, Mike Rita, came to me, who was an associate of Genovese. He said, my guy, Jamie, wants an envelope. But it was all bullshit. So we had a, a, a bouncer named Chico. And Chico obviously sold drugs on the side because we come to find out. And when he was trying to collect a debt, he said he, he's under Ralph. And, you know, that's a fucking <laughs> that, that's a dangerous thing. And, you know, and, and, and it was interesting because A.J. Benza was involved with that. And uh, they took them out for dinner one night and they told A.J. to go home. And Chico uh, was sent to the hospital because he used Ralph's name to collect a drug debt. Wow. I mean, that's, that's, that's a death oh, sentence no. immediately <laughs> for, uh, for Ralph. You know, speaking, I know John Gotti Jr. a bit, and, uh, I, you know, I didn't know him back when he was uh, hell-raising as uh, a thug. Uh, the acting head of the Gambino crime family 30 years ago. But uh, everybody that I know that knew, knew him back in the early to mid-90s 
and everybody that I know that knows him since he got out of prison in, uh, you know, 2007 or so or 2006, that they say, you know, there's a, a lot different. Uh, it's a different guy. He's not this brash, well, I, uh, muscled up 26 year old uh, that he was at the time. I'm just curious. Have you run into John mm-hmm. since he's been out of prison? Yeah. So what happened was um, actually I saw the first time I ever saw him, my, my cousin was a bartender at Spratt's on the Water and that was Phil Basile's place. Ah, sure. And and um, and I remember a guy was with his wife, and the guy went to use the bathroom. And you know, as soon as the guy went to the bathroom, Junior and a couple of his guys went up and started talking to the lady. And when the guy came back from the restroom, oh, I was right there. I was ten feet away. They gave him such a beating, really unprovoked, and right in front of me. And Phil Basile's right there, and Al D'Amato's right there. Yeah, wow. and, and everybody's just standing down because it's Junior. He's allowed to do whatever he wants. This is in the 90s. This is 1987. Oh, oh way back. 80s, okay. yeah. And, and I, that's the first taste I got of him. And I thought it would be great if I never see a guy like him ever again. But lo and behold, seven, eight years later, we had this issue. In 2009, I had owned Philippe Chow from 2005 to 2014. He shows up at Philippe Jericho out in Long Island. And Which he, was also your spot. Yeah. And he doesn't know who I am at the time. But the restaurant was about three quarters full. There were, there were empty tables. And I told the manager, you're going to let him wait at the bar for like an hour before you seat him. And he waited for about an hour and I heard him yelling at the manager, this is bullshit. Why am I waiting? Half, you know, there's, there's empty seats. This table's been empty for an hour. Why can't I just use that table? And then literally we let him sit after like 90 minutes. And that was just my fun thing to watch him squirm and, you know, and watch him feel like he's not that important. I think the John Gotti Jr. of 2009 uh, definitely has a, uh, a newfound pl- respect for his place in the world as opposed yeah. to 1989. Yeah. But um, that is very interesting. In the book, you tell a story about how uh, you thought somebody, one of your employees, was stealing from you and how you you actually used your relationship with uh, Bucky Carbone to uh, get him to stop. What happened? No, actually, so I had this guy, Angelo, who was my manager, and my family knew his family from Montreal, Greek family, asked me for a job. I gave him a job. He became manager of Gotham Diner. And all of a sudden he calls me one day, like five in the morning, because when Friday and Saturday, what he would do, the, the restaurant would probably close by 5 a.m., but we had to get ready at 7 a.m. for breakfast. So it was really almost 24 hours. And Angelo would make that transition. He calls me huffing and puffing and says, oh, somebody broke into the safe and 30000 is gone. Right away, I say to myself, I'm the only one with the combo. And I'm the only one that knows how much money is in there. And he's correct. There's $30,000 in there and it's gone. So what I did was I hired a polygraph, polygraphed all the managers that had access to the office and he failed miserably and everybody knew it was him. So he was probably looking over my shoulder one day and saw me hit with the combination and he just basically copied it. So when I wanted to approach him was we just closed uh, Rouge around four in the morning. We get to Gotham Diner about four thirty-five in the morning and I asked Bucky to come with me. Because, you know, I'm going to accuse him now of stealing and I don't know what he's going to do. Right. So when we got there, I said, you know, Angelo, you know, I got to talk to you about the polygraph. He's like, yeah, I passed. Right. I said, no, you failed. And I know you stole my money. And then he's like, I didn't steal it. Denied, denied, denied. And as we're arguing back and forth, Bucky gets up and says, you know, fuck you. This guy gives you a job. This is how you pay him back. You steal $30,000 from the safe. And you're trying to accuse other innocent people when you know you did it, motherfucker, and blah, 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 blah. And then he pulls out an ice pick out of his boot and he puts it right in his thigh. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm like, this is not what I brought him here for. And he put right into his thigh and Angela's screaming and I'm trying to hold him back. And I tackle Bobby. I said, Bobby, no, 
because I don't know where the next right, one's going to sure. go. You, you can't do this here. Are you kidding me? I, I'm, I'm not all about that. I, I, you know, that's not my life. I don't want to be a part of that. Uh, I'd rather just, you know, call the cops or fire him or get him out of here. I, I don't want you involved this deep. And then well, I said, Angelo, come clean right now because I can't hold him back anymore. Mm. And he said, OK, I stole it. I stole it. Give me an hour. I will go get it and bring it back. I have it at my house. It's at my mother's house. And make a long story short, I, I let him go to go to his mother's house and bring it back because I know if I kept him there, I didn't know where the next ice pick sure. could go. And I was really concerned about that because that's not I'm not a, I'm not that life. I'm not, you know, yeah, you'd want anybody I, killed. I, I, I'm not a violent person sure. like that. And Bobby is. So and I knew he had his good intentions in his heart, but that was the way he wanted to go about it. So I, I let Angela run out the door and I said, come back. I'm going to wait here. He never showed up. I heard he went to Montreal and yeah. So he, you never got the money back. Never got the money Unbelievable. back. Unbelievable. But you know what? I, I thought he was going to kill him. So that's yeah, why, no, uh, I, that's I, why I'd rather him just get out of there. Uh, uh, makes sense. Hey, um, both um, Ralph and Bucky were prominent members of the Genovese family. Around this time, the head, even if people didn't know it, was uh, Vincent Giganti of the Genovese family. It was Tony Salerno who mm-hmm. was the boss of the mm-hmm. Genovese family. But did you ever ever have an opportunity to interact at all with Vincent Giganti? No. So what, what it was is when we had Rouge Nightclub, because Patty Stisso, uh, an attorney, he was my partner, but he was a, tar- a partner for the Genovese's. And basically, I know when he put up 500 grand, I knew where the money was coming mm-hmm. from. But legitimate came in a check, and Patty Stisso was my partner. So every night on the guest list, I'd see Dr. So and so, Dr. So and so, Dr. So and so. So Ali Salerno, grandson of oh, Tony, right. uh, I- Ali was our GM. Like he, was, he was running things <laughs> in the front. And I said, Ali, what are all these fucking doctors here? What does this mean? <laughs> and all he does, he goes like this. He just holds his chin and he just said, and he winks at me. And they were all relatives. They were the sons. They were the uncles. They were, you know, cousins. Uh, they were all relatives of the of the Giganti family. So we had to know them as doctors when they walked into Rouge nightclub. That's hysterical. Uh, you, you talk about how your father was uh, a straight as an arrow, Greek immigrant, and uh, you, you know, stopped somebody from potentially being murdered with an ice pick, <laughs> even someone that robbed you. Was there any reluctance about partnering, even if it wasn't officially, but partnering in a new venture like Rouge Nightclub when you had to know probably the source of your partnership was, you know, was the mob. Was there any reluctance at all on your part? No, I'll tell you why. Because after they squashed the Junior Gotti thing, um, they never asked me for anything. They continued to come to Gotham Diner and they always paid their check. You would have thought if they were like thuggish, they would have been like, hey, you know, we don't don't pay when we eat here anymore. No, they always paid their bill. They didn't ask me for anything. Ralph just wanted to see me do good. He always said that. He even changed my produce guy so I could lower my price by 20%. You know, he, he just wanted to see me succeed. And every time they went there, they all paid. And it was never, I never had to pay back anything for what they did by squashing the, uh, the junior crew from shaking me down. When you had Rouge, uh, there then came a time where there was a, a West Coast mobster that tried to muscle you a bit. What happened? There's a guy at Rouge nightclub, and he says to me, um, the manager comes over, and he says, you know, there's a guy that wants to meet with you. He's in the liquor business, and he wants to meet with you. So I sit down with him. I introduce myself. I forgot what he told me the name was, but it wasn't his real name. And um, he says, you know, you got a good business going on here. And I said, yeah. And why am I sitting here with you? <laughs> I heard you own liquor. What, 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 do you, what do you want to discuss? And he's like, well, I want to be your partner. 
I said, you want to be my what? Meanwhile, the place was packed every night and it was doing just great. I didn't need partners. And I knew who my partners were anyway. So I said, I'm not interested. And he obviously didn't. He didn't. Of course not, because he never would have attempted such a thing that he attempted. And then um, I said, I don't need partners. Thank you very much. And he goes, no, no, you, you don't get up. You sit down. I said, who the fuck are you? And he goes, I'm going to make you one offer. So he basically takes a napkin and he writes, I don't remember, it was a cloth napkin. He ruined my cloth napkin. Yeah, and he writes 10,000 on it. And then he pops out a nine millimeter, pops a bullet and puts it on the table. So he puts $10,000 napkin or a bullet. He tells me to pick one. I said, you really want to go there? So obviously in my head, I'm saying this guy hasn't gotten the memo that who's around me and who's here protecting me. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, you know what? Let me, let me play this out because I don't know who the fuck this guy is. He says it's from L.A. and he's a Jewish gangster. I didn't even know that even existed. I thought Bugsy Siegel was gone and that's exactly what he looked like. Dressed like in $4,000, $5,000 suit. He looked like he was a Bugsy Siegel. He had the hat that he put down. It was just, it was, it was out of a movie. So I, um, I call Ralph right away. We meet at Cafe Tabak, which was a place that downtown. And um, I told him what happened. He started laughing. Was it a, like a smoking lounge? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I knew it as Circa Tabak. Yeah, Maybe yeah. later they yeah, changed yeah, the name. Yeah, yeah. Cafe Tabak. I think it was Lower East Side or something. And um, he starts laughing like he knew of him, but it was nothing. So make a long story short, I text back the Jewish gangster and I said, yeah, my partners want to meet with you uh, tomorrow around 2 a.m. Are you good? And he said, I'll be there. Because this guy's thinking I'm just bringing regular partners. Right, right. So then I walk in around that time and Ralph and him are having champagne and they're sitting in the VIP room in the back. And at this point, the room starts emptying out. And by 4, 4.30, it's completely empty. The rest of the club is closed. And I'm seeing they're having a good old time. And they're drinking champagne. And I went to Bucky and I went to Allie and I'm like, this is fucked up. <laughs> this guy threatened my life and he calls me nephew and he's like having a good old time with this guy. You know, shut up, Greek. Shut up, Greek. Just, just close your mouth. They all knew that there was a plan here. And I didn't, I, mm-hmm. I didn't get the memo. Obviously, I'm not supposed to. So as they thought I had left, I come back again. And all I heard Ra- Ralph say, let me give you the counter offer. He picks up like a 40-pound candelabra, which was really big and heavy. Sure. And he picks it up with one hand and he just hits him over the head multiple times. And the guy's basically crushed. And as that's happening, they're rushing me out of there because they don't want me to see this. And they put me in a taxi, closed the door. And that's all I that's all I saw. So the next day when I got there, I knew that there was blood all over the floor and I knew there was blood on the walls. And I'm like, man, what happened to this guy? I mean, I don't even know what's going to go. What's going to happen next? It didn't look good for him. He must be in the hospital or something. And um, all I saw was everything was spotless. There was new sheetrock. There was new <laughs> fabric. And all I saw was a 20-foot area rug was gone. And I don't know why it was gone. It could have been gone because it was stained or other reasons. I don't know. But that's the only thing that I saw the next day was the 20-foot rug was gone. Needless to say, I'm imagining you never saw that fellow again. Never saw him again. Nobody ever inquired about him. Um, nobody said he was missing. So I, I really don't know what happened to him. If he just got beaten down bad, maybe the carpet was just stained and they got rid of it forever. I, I don't know. Well, one of the things that we've seen uh, over the last 25, 30 years especially is the government making increasingly broad racketeering conspiracy indictments and occasionally indicting people or threatening to indict people that are at best at the very outskirts of the criminal activity that they aim to be uh, part of. And a lot of times the goal is to get someone to uh, to offer testimony against somebody, to flip on someone, and they do this sometimes through intimidation or uh, 
uh, sometimes trying to take advantage of people's naivete. Did you ever get approached by federal authorities and threatened or, you know, muscled in any way, not by the mob, but by the feds Mm -hmm. um, with anything like that? Yeah. So about a dozen times they would knock on my door. I was living with my girlfriend at the time. They would knock on my door at like 5, 6 a.m. Sometimes I was drunk. Sometimes I, you know, just sleeping. And um, I said, what do you guys want? And, and, and they, they're the same questions. They show me like 20 pictures. It would be a picture of me and Ralph, me and Bucky, me and Barney, the three of us, the four of us at Gotham Diner, at Cafe Tabak, walking down the street. And they would have all these pictures to show me. And I said, and, and what are you trying to do here? And they're like, well, what are you doing with these guys? You know, what's your, you know, what's your involvement? Are you in business with these guys? I said, first of all, they're my friends. And that's all you need to know at this time. Unless you want to bring me in. I said, they're my friends. And I appreciate if you stop coming back. They continued to come back. And then eventually they put me in in front of a grand jury. And I took the fifth. And because you know what, I'm not going to answer these hundred BS questions because they're going to try to twist my words around and use it against me. Because the truth was, truth is, they were my friends. Did I know that they were backing me and protecting me? Of course. Did I know that they, they were they were not my direct partner? Mm. They were part. You know, my partner was Patty Stisso. He was a lawyer. You know where he got his money. The money didn't come in cash. It came in a check. So I, I wasn't going into business with somebody bringing right. me a bag of cash. And uh, needless to say, you pled the fifth in the grand jury, and that was the end of that. Yeah, but so a funny story. In 2009, I'm invited from the owner of Grey Goose. He invites me to Yankee Stadium at his box. And all the security there are ex-FBI agents. Now, this is 2009. This is like 15 years later. So I have a name called Stratus. So not too many many Stratuses you're going to meet. So this one, one security says to me, hey, we met before somewhere. I just don't know where. And I'm like, I don't know. You don't look familiar to me, but whatever. So by the seventh inning stretch, he goes, I know, I know where I know you, Greek. Come here. And I'm like, Greek, come here? Who the fuck are you? You know, and, and he goes, bro, I'm the one that used to knock on your door. And I said, I'm sorry. I was either drunk or half asleep. I don't remember you. And he goes, I, I retired from the federal FBI like seven, eight years ago, but I got a couple of questions and it's off the record. What's your story, man? We couldn't figure it out. What's your story? I said, there is no story. These were my friends. And that's something you couldn't understand. They were my friends, but they were part. I go, no, they were not partners with me. Patty Stissa was my partner. Now, what he did, because he got in trouble later on, I guess, for laundering money or whatever, and he went to prison for it. That's his business. When I filled out the SLA applications, Mm. we showed where the money came from his checking account. There was nothing shady about it. But I knew who, who Patty was, and I knew who he represented but so, yeah, these guys were my friends. And let me ask you something, Mr. FBI agent. When Junior was shaking me down, when all these guys were coming after me and taking a piece of me, where were you guys to protect me? Mm. Where were you guys? And know what he said to me? You know, man, you're right. But, you know, at least we got Junior and, he, and he's away. This was like 2008 or nine or whatever. We got him eventually. And I said, it doesn't matter. Back then when I needed help. And he, goes, and he asked, he goes, did you come? I go, no, I could not come to you because I know, I know your track record. You wouldn't have done anything for right. me but put me in harm's way. Mm. 
that's wild, though, uh, that, uh, you know, sometimes you see the same tactics employed by the feds as you do by some people that uh, are uh, are associated with the mob. It's certainly wild to think about. Now, 1998, you get married, mm-hmm. and obviously it's clear by the depth of this uh, relationship that you have with, uh, with Ralph Coppola that he would have been invited to the wedding. And he was invited to the wedding, mm-hmm. but he doesn't come. How come? Yeah, so um, uh, I was married in uh, September 26, 1998, and there were two seats empty at the New York Palace on 50th and Madison, and I knew that was Ralph's seat and his wife. And I said, um, you know, I was really, I, I was really upset about it. I was like, cannot believe there's something more important than coming to my wedding. I there didn't go one week where we didn't speak. And um, then I went to Bucky and I said, what the fuck? You know, because, you know, you got to understand my the wife, my wife's family own Rayos. Sure. <laughs> so it was like it, it was a pretty cool scene of a lot of who's who from every, every side. Yeah. And um, Rayos tomato sauce, not the not not the restaurant. They own the tomato sauce w- with Frankie and uh, Ron. Um, and I said, Bucky, what happened? You know, and he basically didn't answer me. So by the time the evening was almost over, he whispers in my ear, Ralph's gone. I said, what do you mean? Ralph's gone. He goes, Ralph's gone. Don't ask. He's gone. I said, he's gone? He's gone. And I'm just like, oh, my God. He waited for the end of my wedding to tell me because mm-hmm. he knew I'd be heartbroken. Right, he wanted to ruin your day, sure. It still bothers me today. You know? but, but again, you know, you know what got me through this is that he chose that life. And, you know, and allegedly, they accused him of skimming from the Javits Center. And allegedly, um, they asked him to go, into the, go to a, a sit-down in Harlem, and he never came out. Mm. And... Um, to this day, they never found his body, and, uh, and 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 the weird part was there were people in my wedding that probably knew all about it and were a part of that decision. But it's not something that I'm going to get involved in because I, I don't know anything and I don't want to know anything. And again, that's the life that Ralph chose. As much as it hurt, that's the life that he chose. Clearly, you had a relationship, uh, a friend, friend professional relationship, a personal relationship with a lot of folks that were involved in La Cosa Nostra. Was that moment when someone that you were so close to, when you saw that his decisions led to his own demise, was that sort of a wake-up call that you wanted to be less involved with uh, these people at all? No, not for that reason. My my reason for not being involved with them anymore is that, you know, there were, Ralph to me was an honorable one. To me, he he was a stand-up guy. Um, too many thugs out there, and um, and at that point, I thought it was a new time to flip the chapter. And you know, then I started partnering up with these Wall Street guys, and the head of Credit Suisse was one of my finance backers, um, and that's where I created Philippe Chow. Um, and at that point, the only time I got, uh, you know, Mike Rita came to me and asked me that I need to give an envelope to the Genovese capo. That was not a part of my history. It was like, an, you know, just a guy that popped out of the woodworks because they thought they could just make easy sure. money off me. And I said, fuck off. And, um, so with that said, I knew that this thing was done with me because there's no honorable guys out there. They're all rats and they're all just, you know, they're just, they're just not, they're just thugs. And, you know, and, and that they, they weren't Ralph, you know, and Barney and, and Bucky. These guys were just like, you know, they were my friends. And, um, and, and I, I, I wasn't looking for new friends. And the funny part is I became partners with like, you know, Fortune 100 companies, <laughs> CEOs. And uh, later I dealt with politicians during mandates and COVID. And part of my book says, you know what? I've dealt with the mob. I've dealt with Wharton MBA types that ran Fortune 100 companies. 
And I've also dealt with Cuomo and de Blasio fighting them during the mandates. And I will tell you, if I had to pick a, a partner out of the three of them, if I had to do it again, I'd be partners with the mob. Uh, we've been talking with Stratus Morphigan, a longtime restaurateur, author of the new book, Be a Disruptor, Streetwise Lessons for Entrepreneurs from the Mob to Mandates. The book is out. Everybody is talking about it, and uh, it's gotten a lot of buzz. As a restaurateur and as someone who, as I said, has sort of become the face for New York City restaurant owners for uh, many years now, what is the mob influence on the restaurant business today, at least in New York? I, I don't know anything. I don't know any, uh, any part of it. It's funny. I had a conversation with Mayor Giuliani at the Macanudo Club, and I said, it's funny. When you cleaned up, quote unquote, cleaned up the garbage business, you know, and brought BFI in and waste management and all the family mobbed up uh, carting business had to go out of business, which a lot of these companies were just legit companies. And I remember my garbage going from $1,000 to 200 And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. But the truth is, fast forward like 11 years and 10 years later, and it's back to $2,000. Mm. And I said to Giuliani, I said, you know what happened here. These guys could afford to charge 200 where these families that own their carting business couldn't because they didn't have, they didn't have public money to burn. You know, these guys had to make a living. Right. And I think that was a big mistake what you did by wiping out all these families in the carting business because the true mobsters are waste management and BFI. The, the mayor listens to us every week, so I'm sure he'll hear this conversation. But what did he say in response? And he agreed. Yeah. He agreed. I just actually saw Andrew Giuliani literally uh, a week ago. And we were talking that, you know, Mayor Giuliani cleaned up. He cleaned up New York City and he made our lives a lot easier. The shakedowns were gone. And, uh, there were, uh, and all the thugs were running for cover. So we call it in the restaurant industry, pre-Giuliani, post-Giuliani. Mm. Uh, that could be said uh, a lot of different aspects uh, of New York. Uh, and Giuliani was very close with my uncle, who was the Queen's Supreme Court judge, Judge DeMacos. Uh, why are you choosing, obviously there are a lot of lessons that people can benefit from, but why are you choosing to tell these stories and share these lessons now? Well, you know what it is? I, I've, I've, I, I just recreated uh, a quick service restaurant with uh, using the Automat and people have been telling me for the last 15 years, you got to write a book. you got to write a book. As much as I have about mob stories in there, I have a lot of other stories in there about business, about inspiration, about you know, what to do in down markets. And what, what I realized in business books is that when you read a business book, it's so supported by analytics. And these analytics to me are boring. It's like saying if you get 2% of this billion-dollar market, you'll be a multimillionaire. That's bullshit. Right. You know, to me, my book is inspiration and lessons about business. And how it was working the streets and being in business in New York City. But it's not supported by analytics. It's supported by real true stories of success, failure, and obstacles and how I handled it. And I believe it's going to help a lot of young kids when they want to, be, when they want to decide to make that step to be an entrepreneur. And we want to encourage everybody to uh, check out the book and uh, delve into some of the lessons you share in the book. But if you had to pick one, the greatest lesson that you learned in your experience of dealing with people that were trying to extort you, what would it be? What is the biggest lesson that you learned and that you would teach to others who might find themselves similarly situated, maybe not by the mob or the feds, but by somebody at some time? You know, it's funny. If, if you, uh, we, we have some uh, laughter about this. Most of these mobsters, which I call the thuggish ones and the ones that have, you know, no, no morals and no boundaries, you, you just yell cop and they're going to start running, especially in today's time. Mm. So for the person that didn't have a Ralph Coppola in the back pocket to support and help him, you know what? You just cry cops and they're going to go running. Because remember, I'm a civilian and you're a civilian. 
And if you got a problem, you know what? You just go to the cops. I didn't want to do that back then because, you know, to me, that was like, you know, I grew up in the market. I grew up, I grew up. To me, being a rat, that's what I I would have called myself would be a rat. But in truth, I wouldn't have been a rat. I'm a civilian. And I go to the police when I have a problem. I didn't make that choice because of the upbringing that I had. But there would have been no issue if I did that. So when they came at me in 2006 to be partners at Philippe Chow, I said to Mike Rita, don't make me out to be a rat. Because this time... You know what? I'm not going to go to another family and look for help because those guys aren't out there anymore. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, I think the term "rat" doesn't apply at all to somebody that's a victim of a crime. To me, the rats are the kind of people that you described that, that chose were the life. John Gotti Jr., who ha- have never worked yes. and who's made their whole career. People like Mike DiLeonardo, John A. Light, Frank Fabiano, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, they, Kevin McMahon, they, who um, they chose the life. Who who have spent their whole lives, you know, Being involved criminals. in violence yeah. and crime, yeah. and then instead of yeah. paying the piper yeah, yeah. when it comes time for them to go to prison, yeah. they choose to try to bring down everybody they could possibly can to get a get out of jail free card. Uh, so it's uh, I don't think uh, I don't think the term rat applies to uh, to you or anybody that's a victim of a crime. Yeah, and and that's my advice to civilians out there that if they ever had that, it's because you're not going to find it anymore. It's not it doesn't exist. But back then. If I, I don't look down on a straight business owner going to the police for help, but unfortunately, you weren't going to get much help. Right, that's a, that's a shame. Well, it's some story. I want to encourage everybody to check out the book "Be a Disruptor: Streetwise Lessons for Entrepreneurs from the Mob to Mandates." Uh, we've got to have another conversation on the radio, maybe next week, Stratus, about uh, some of the experiences you've had in dealing with the the restaurant business that don't involve the mob. You mentioned the automat technology; that's pretty interesting. And uh, this trend, I feel like everybody I know, their aspiration is to be a social media influencer, mm-hmm. and it seems like a whole bunch of them are trying to eat for free at restaurants all around <laughs> New York, so I want to ask you about that as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. If you uh, enjoyed this podcast, please share it and subscribe. It is The Racket Report. Uh, you could check us out each and every other week. You could also email me if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.